If you're hearing this, I'm back online. That's not been the case now for nearly a week. You might have noticed that the site has been going bananas. Uh, unfortunately, when I started this podcast, I built the site around the cheapest software available, and now I'm learning why it was so cheap. So I'm getting some new fancy software for the site, and in the meantime, I'm just trying to cobble things together to make sure it stays online so you can get episodes. So thank you very much for all of your patience, and a big thank you to members for supporting the podcast, because you're the only reason we get any software for the site. And if the site goes down again, don't worry, I will bring it back up again. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 299, The Shape of Power. This show is ad-free due to member support. If you'd like to support the show and our fancy new software, you can do so at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Andrew, Rosalind, and Janice for signing up already. So oh, I can go for a whiskey drink right about now. Eldermen and thanes and churls, these were the important cogs in the machine of government. They had powerful roles, and they held powerful spaces within Anglo-Saxon culture. And I think it's time we start to get to know these roles like the back of our hands. Because as you might have guessed, we're on the cusp of a new season of the BHP. And for those of you who know your history, you'll know that things for the Anglo-Saxons are about to get pretty rough. The triumph of the story of the last few generations of the House of Wessex is about to take a turn. And it's far too easy to lay what happens next at the feet of certain individuals. In fact, many historians do tend to just shrug and lay the blame on two or three specific individuals, one of whom has a rather unfortunate nickname, the Unready. But as we're going to learn, that story is too simple. And honestly, in the context of telling the Anglo-Saxon saga, it really misses the forest for the trees. It misses what was going on with the rest of the nobility. Now, you're already familiar with how the downward pressure created by wealth concentration had led to an acceleration of exploitative wealth extraction, and how these extraction efforts were reshaping the literal landscape of Britain, and how it was also fundamentally shifting the relationship between the people and the crown. And as a consequence, England was experiencing an era of unheard of prosperity, this organization and introduction of technology and the unchecked exploitation of the peasant classes created a situation where enormous amounts of resources could be extracted from the land. And some people were getting very, very rich. And it is precisely these individuals at the top and the decisions that they make over the next two or three generations that bring the Anglo-Saxon world to its knees and leave it open to any invaders who might want to take the island for themselves. And when one person makes a bad decision, we can usually lay the blame at the feet of that person and just call it a day. But when a group of people make the same bad decision in a short amount of time and do it repeatedly, well, then you're looking at evidence that they're responding to incentives provided by some sort of structure. And the Anglo-Saxons and the story of their fall is no different. So before we enter the final act, we're going to get a lay of the land. We're going to get to know that structure. Now, at the top of the structure was, as I'm sure you've guessed, the king. But you already know what a king was in the Anglo-Saxon context. And you have a pretty good idea of what the powers and constraints he had were. In fact, we've covered kings in such detail that you even know that under the West Saxon system, his wife didn't have a title. She was just the king's wife. We've done kings to death. 
So we're going to skip right past them and go to the next rung on the ladder, the Elderman. Now, it's somewhat ironic that I'm covering Elderman in this episode, because at right about this point in our story, the term Elderman was slowly falling out of use, and it was being replaced by a corruption of an old Scandinavian term, Jarl, or what the English were now calling Earl. But for all intents and purposes, both Elderman and Earl were pretty much the same position. So to make things easy, we're just going to stick with the word Elderman for now. So, what is an Elderman? Well, at its most basic level, an Elderman was a powerful landholding man. But almost immediately, that definition gets us in trouble. Because not all powerful landholders were Eldermen. Furthermore, some women, in particular abbesses, were really powerful landholders. And they weren't Eldermen either. And that's because the title of Elderman wasn't an inherited role. It wasn't something that was passed down from father to son. Nor was it something that was determined based on scale of power. It wasn't a simple matter of saying, well, once you reach a certain degree of wealth or land acquisition, you become an elderman. Rather, elderman was a title that was bestowed by the king himself. And as such, it wasn't something that anyone could pass down to their heirs. Nor did it grant the elderman's wife any sort of special status. She was just an elderman's wife. The elderman held the title of elderman, and that was pretty much it. Now, many of these eldermen were extended members of royal families, and a look into the lineage of many of the earls in power by the time of the Doomsday Book reveals that many of the political figures who held that title, Earl, what is now Elderman, could trace themselves all the way back to the House of Wessex, or to the dynasty of Canute. And given the degree of power that was funneling into these roles, and the familial connections that were intertwined in the appointment, it would be reasonable for an Elderman's son to expect that the king would grant him his father's title when the elderman died. And that did happen. But it wasn't a sure bet. This was entirely up to the king. It wasn't truly hereditary. And to understand their role in society, that is a key aspect you need to keep in mind. Now, the role of elderman is rather interesting in its relationship to the Anglo-Saxon power structure. Because due to the fact that it was bestowed, rather than it being a reflection of actual power it meant that not all eldermen were created equal. In fact, in the later Anglo-Saxon era, there are eldermen who control estates that ranged anywhere from a few hundred hides of land to several thousand hides of land. We're talking about an order of magnitude and difference. And that's before you even get to the issue that a hide of land wasn't strictly bounded. It could be anywhere between 30 acres or even up to 100 acres or more. Again, this was before lasers or pocket calculators. So the difference between one elderman and another could be vast. Think about it like the difference between a run-of-the-mill Wall Street hedge fund manager and the Waltons, that family who owns Walmart. Now, both are undoubtedly wealthy compared to the rest of us, but the Waltons lose more money in their seat cushions than that hedge fund manager can make in his lifetime. So think about it like that. So that being said, we are talking about the top of Anglo-Saxon society. So even though there are differences... Don't assume that some eldermen weren't wealthy. They were. These were rich people. You don't see poor eldermen. All of them had some degree of land ownership. And on top of that, many of them had manors that were attached to the title, which meant that upon acquiring the title, the new elderman would get a manor or manors that were for his use during the tenure of his service. And that might seem like a minor thing. I mean, 
getting a house is great and all, but it's hardly going to propel you into an aristocratic realm. But that manner wasn't the important part. It was what was attached to that manner. For example, let's say you were close to the king, and in response, he decided to name you Elderman. And as you were bestowed this title, he proudly informed you that you would take possession of the manor at Puddletown, and you'd have it for as long as he continued in that role. And so great, you got a house in Puddletown. And that might seem kind of anticlimactic. I mean, I'm not knocking Puddletown, but if you've just reached one of the top rungs in the English aristocratic ladder, and you're just given a house? Well, that's kind of a letdown. Well, not really. Because that manor at Puddletown is quite special. Because it didn't stand alone. Instead, that manor held third penny rights to the whole of the Shire of Dorset. Now, a third penny right was a legal concept that denoted the elderman's share in any trade or justice that was carried out in the territories that that third penny right was attached to. So, for example, if a crime was committed in Dorset and a fine was incurred, the victim's family would gain some degree of restitution. The king would also get his share. And you, thanks to your possession of the manor at Puddletown, would get a share of that fine because you have third penny rights to the whole of the Shire of Dorset. So that's what a third penny share is. So functionally, by attaching third penny rights to manors and then having the manors granted commiserate with service as an elderman, the English were finding a way to bureaucratically organize and regulate how nobles drew income from their associated lands. And these third penny manors could be attached to much smaller plots of land as well, even down to the hundred level. For example, the manor at Much Cowern had third penny rights to three different hundreds. You see this happening all over the place. And in our hypothetical story of Apperley, there's a good chance that there was a noble who had third penny rights attached specifically to Apperley. And eventually, we start to see third pennies getting attached all over the place. For example, the manor at Cleve, which was held by Harold Godwinson, had third penny rights to the royal manors at Carhampton, Williton, Cannington, and North Petherton. Now, these are four places that were not only not connected, but they're actually kind of far apart from each other. And compounding the weirdness, some manors also had third penny rights over other manors. And then that manor also had third penny rights attached to some other lands. You can see how that might start to add up really quickly for a lucky elderman, can't you? And after a bit of time, mapping out these manors looks suspiciously like the results of mapping out the subsidiaries for modern multinational conglomerates. Everyone's intertwined, and many times you find nobles drawing taxes from all over the place, rather than just a specific shire where they happen to be. And as a result, you see a drift towards a situation where titles were becoming disconnected from the specific land that they were originally tied to. But that wasn't the only way that eldermen got money. They might also gain some temporary lands other than those manors for the tenure of their service. Now, this is a matter of some debate, but some historians have argued that there's evidence that along with the title and the manor, an elderman would also acquire associated vills, at least for as long as he held that title. But within all this complexity, there is an enormous potential for real material inequality between the eldermen. You see, even if you were a poorer elderman, but then you ended up getting third penny rights that raised you up to the same level as your other more independently wealthy eldermen that still didn't actually make things equal. An alderman who relied heavily on his third penny income lacked the same degree of independence that an alderman who drew most of his income from his own lands had. 
You see, this third penny thing means that the elderman is forever reliant on the king because the king could take away his livelihood and source of power on a whim. And that places him in the crown's pocket. On the other hand, an elderman who came into the position already living as sort of a medieval industrial magnate would have had a very different relationship to the king because his power comes from his land. And that makes it hard for the king to revoke. And an obvious result of that is that he would have had a great deal more independence. And that could be a dangerous thing, considering how much power an elderman could have. Speaking of that power, the power the elderman held was actually kind of odd. Instinctively, you might imagine that an elderman had a large amount of power over his specific shire. And in fact, that was the way it worked for the Franks at about the same time. Their equivalent position had a ton of control over their counties. But that wasn't exactly the case in England. Judith's offspring, the Counts of Flanders, had tons of power, and that power was hereditary. But conversely, the eldermen of England were appointed, and they were, at their core, merely servants of the crown. They were high-ranked servants, but still servants. So when we talk about what the elderman's duties and powers and privileges are, it's important to remember that all of this flows from the king's authority. Everything about the position was deliberately fashioned to reflect that dynamic, and also likely to remind the elderman who was really in control here. And all of that starts right at the center of the elderman's power, his wealth. A major bonus of holding a shire was having access to the mint that was contained in the main burr of that shire. For example, the mint at Gloucester. That's a big deal. But the eldermen weren't minting their own coins. The king was minting coins. Those were his coins, not the eldermen's. The eldermen just received a share of the total profit from that minting. And that's an important distinction. This wasn't something that they directly benefited from. But rather, the king benefited from it, and then they were given a portion. Furthermore, because they weren't minting their own coins the king decided when, where, and how many coins would be minted. Meaning that if the elderman stepped out of line, that number might be reduced to zero, thus cutting off an enormous source of income. Similarly, the reeves, the men who rode through the shire collecting taxes, those were the king's officers. And again, that's an important distinction because it wasn't the elderman's men who were out there collecting taxes. It was the king's. So any changes in taxes wouldn't come from the eldermen. They'd come directly from the king. That was his power. Now, granted, the elderman was often entitled to the third penny of those taxes. But the fact can't be missed that all of this was contingent on the king's continued goodwill towards the elderman. Or you have the fact that while the elderman commanded the fur to the shire, the army itself was called by the king. But I think one of the best examples of how the power relationship worked and how it was different from the Frankish counties was the fact that there wasn't an eldermancy court. They didn't have their own courts where they wrote their own laws and enforced their own justice. Instead, the eldermen sat at the head of the shire court. And that's a subtle but important distinction because they were there enforcing the king's justice. It was his laws that they applied. It was his peace that they kept. The court that they attended wasn't theirs. It was the court of the Shire, and the Shire was subject to the king. But that being said, the Shire courts were still an important aspect of an elderman's power. They were where legal disputes would be handled, land transfers would be recognized, and actually marriages would be attested to, at least important marriages. 
Unferth shacking up with Hilda probably didn't earn him a trip to Gloucester. But if you had the heirs of two powerful noble families, you'd probably want that attested in the court. Because you weren't dealing with love here. I mean, one hopes there's love. But more than likely, this was an arranged marriage based on political and economic motives of the respective families. And for a contract that was that important, you'd want it handled in the Shire Court. Furthermore, for the more important duties, such as disputes involving powerful claimants or something like that, well, there'd be a hearing of the full Shire Court. And that was made up of all the leading men of the Shire. So presumably, the highest-born individuals, the largest magnates, and the highest-ranked clergy members would all be part of this. And of course, this era being what it was, there would be a large degree of overlap in those groups. But it was a prestigious group, and the Eldermen would have sat at the head of it, which would have conferred a great deal of power to him. But again, it's power contingent on the king. Now, one small check on the king's power was the fact that when the king wrote his laws, apparently they were said to be ratified by the Shire Court. When King Athelstan wrote his laws, they were sent to Kent and heard by the full Shire Court, not just the Elderman himself, and were agreed to and ratified. But the fact it required the full Shire Court rather than just the Elderman is another example of how this structure highlights the fact that while the Eldermen were rich, they, like everyone else, were still ultimately servants of the crown. Powerful servants, but servants nevertheless. And that brings us to the Thanes, whose name literally derives from the word servant. Now, unlike Elderman, the title of Thane was hereditary. If you're the firstborn son of a Thane, you could reasonably expect to acquire that title, you know, unless something catastrophic happened. And it's probably helpful to think of Thanes as the basic level of the English nobility. Not the lowest level, mind you, merely the most basic level. Most of the noblemen that a king or anyone of stature would have dealt with were of the Thane class. Basically, in the halls of power, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a Thane. And holding the title of Thane came with a set of duties. This included providing military service when required, as well as offering fealty and paying taxes and all that sort of thing. But for the most part, being a thane meant that you were from the right family and you had a sufficient amount of land. By having your stature tied so heavily to your lands and doing so in a hereditary manner, rather than it being reliant on an appointment of the king, that meant that thanes might not have felt quite the same degree of pressure to please the king that the eldermen might have felt. But on the other hand, it also put them in a more precarious position. Because all it would take is one or two bad heirs, and your entire dynasty could be devastated, and large amounts of your lands could fall into the hands of your rivals, or even the king. And that did happen many times over the years. Through luck, the whims of the king, and shrewd decision-making, or lack thereof, we see the fortunes of some things rise substantially, while others collapse into the ash bins of history. As a consequence of this fluidity, not all thanes were created equal. Some thanes might just hold dominion over a handful of hides of land, while others... Well, for example, we know of an 11th century thane named Esger, and he was recorded as having 300 hides of land, which would have made him one of the wealthiest men in England. Though, as was the case with many land magnates, those 300 hides were also spread out over nine different shires, so he didn't have a single power block to draw from. But Thane Esger is an important lesson here, because even though he wasn't an elderman, and even though his lands were spread out, 
the wealth that he had carried a lot of weight. And pretty soon, he began to take on rights and duties that put him close to the same rank as Elderman. We see him acting in roles that gave him an incredible degree of access to the king, and even authority to act on the king's behalf. And keep in mind that unlike lesser Elderman, who had their income contingent on keeping the king happy, Thane Esger was already rich in his own right, and he likely held more lands than many of those same Eldermen. So in some very important ways, this Thane was actually more powerful than many of the Eldermen of his day who technically outranked him. And it is in this apparent contradiction where we can see where the power of the kingdom truly lies. The real power in England, the thing that made the Eldermen formidable, wasn't their money. I mean, wealth was part of it, but wealth just gets you in the door. The real power was something that even Thanes had a chance to get to. It was access to the king. Eldermen were titans in English life because they were part of the Witan, and that meant they had access to the king in ways that most nobles didn't. But the interesting part about noble life during this era is that it wasn't the Eldermen who had the most access to the king. I mean, sure, they would see him in functions, and they were part of his council any time the Witan was called. But they weren't normally part of the king's retinue. Instead, that group was populated by thanes. The fact was, the king had need for all kinds of servants. He needed seneschals, chamberlains, butlers, you name it. And many of those roles were being filled by thanes. Because the eldermen were busy in their own shires. Or, you know, just busy being eldermen and they didn't want to be a seneschal. So we see a whole constellation of thanes around the king. And the most prestigious of these roles fell under the broad category of king's thanes. And these positions were so highly sought after that it was quite common to see eldermen sending their sons to serve in the king's household. And why wouldn't you? First of all, a king's thane was subject only to the king's jurisdiction, so that would have provided your child a certain degree of judicial protection from your rivals. But beyond that, by sending your son to serve the king, he was gaining unprecedented access, which wouldn't only benefit you directly, but also would set him up well for the future. Provided, of course, that he does a good job. But consequently, a king's household often consisted of a who's who of English dynastic life. And this had been going on for a long time. For example, King Athelwolf of Wessex, that was Alfred the Great's father, well, he had a butler who was a descendant of mighty stuff in Wittgar, meaning that his butler was Jutish royalty. But don't take that to mean that the House of Wessex had descendants of highborn nobles going and doing the dishes or laundering their undies. The nobles who were in this position oversaw other individuals who actually did the real work. Furthermore, the court wasn't operationalized yet, so tasks in the king's court were fluid, and a butler might also take on seneschal-like tasks, or sometimes act as a reeve. King's thanes were expected to carry out tasks as the situation came up. If a thane was part of the king's retinue, his duty was to make sure that things got done, and then of course, be on hand whenever the king needed him, or you know, wanted to talk because access really was the name of the game here. But at the very top of the group of King's Thanes were the attendants, men who would later be referred to as the King's Stallers. You might remember Thane Esger from earlier in the episode, the guy who had 300 hides of land and wielded power close to that of an elderman. Well, he was an attendant. These were the most powerful Thanes, and they traveled with the King's inner circle and could carry out tasks on his behalf. 
Now, something to keep in mind is that while being a powerful thane made you eligible for the role of attendant, it didn't guarantee it. What made an attendant an attendant wasn't his land. It was his proximity to the crown. More importantly, it was whether or not the king allowed him to have that proximity. And interestingly, it seems that there were actually dynasties of attendants. People whose father and whose father's father and so on had served successive kings as attendants. But like wealth, being part of one of these families doesn't appear to have guaranteed service as an attendant. It merely added to the noble's resume. This was something that the king handed out, or didn't, based largely on his own desires. But it was a role that pretty much everyone wanted to fill if they could. Because while local thanes played a significant role in the structure of English noble power, they weren't able to wield anything like the king's thanes or the attendants could. Furthermore, there was the simple fact that serving as a king's attendant put you on the fast track to wealth. And the most obvious way that this manifested was that a king's attendant was best positioned to gain the king's favor. The king was happy and wanted to hand out presents. You were right there. And many times, that was manifested in gifts of treasure or what was most desired, bookland. But wealth could also be extracted through the duties that the king was delegating. For example, the king might ask an attendant to act as a reeve for a particular hundred, or maybe even a shire. And that was something that could be easily exploited for personal gain. And I can think of no better example of this sort of behavior than that of Wolfstan. Wolfstan was an attendant who served King Edgar the Peaceable of England. And if he doesn't sound familiar to you right now, don't worry. He's not on the throne yet. Actually, he's the son of King Edmund, the king whose murder we recently learned of. So, Wolfstan. He was King Edgar's personal attendant. And he was quite possibly a member of one of those ministerial families that I mentioned earlier. Looking at names and things, it certainly does look like his family had been serving kings for quite some time. And from the record, he seems to have known exactly how to work the system. And what's interesting is he was actually being praised for being, quote, wise in counsel and strong in action, end quote. But I'm not sure if wise is the adjective that I would use if I was talking about Wolfstan. I'd probably go with shrewd. But here, I'll tell the story and let you decide. So there is an ecclesiastical community at Horningsea, and as a community, they held title to the land. But over time, individual powerful members of that minster began to exercise control over specific plots of that land. And basically what they were doing was privatizing it. So rather than all this land being owned by the minster as a community, now all of a sudden you had small plots that were owned by individual clergy members, or maybe even not even clergy members. But that's how a guy named Leofstan ended up owning a few hides of land at Horningsea. Now, Leofstan was a shady character who liked to acquire more than just lands through unconventional means. He also liked to acquire stuff. Specifically, stuff that wasn't his, but soon would be his. And eventually, that hobby ended up getting him busted for theft. And the penalties for theft could actually be quite severe, which left Leofstan quite worried. But he was in luck. Wolfstan, the trusted attendant of King Edgar, was in town, and a king's attendant was exactly the sort of person who could resolve this little misunderstanding Leofstan found himself in. And Leofstan apparently had fantastic luck, because Wolfstan took the meeting. And when we next hear of Leofstan, he's a free man. But as for those lands that he acquired, well now, 
They were owned by Wolfstan. I guess that was the price of freedom. Sometime later, a bunch of daggers, fabrics, and other materials went missing. And again, this was at Horningsey. Though this time, apparently Leofstan had an alibi, so everyone was a little bit puzzled how this stuff went missing. And this theft was a really big deal, because this stuff was stolen from the son of a prominent member of the community, a guy named Thorred. And Thorred wasn't going to let this go. No one steals from the house of Thorred. And apparently, he went full NYPD blue on this thing and started chasing down leads and squeezing people. And pretty soon, he was tipped off where the goods were. He was told that they were in some chests owned by Harolf, the head priest of Horningsee. Because Horningsee was apparently like the Florida of England. So, Thorred gets a posse together, and he bursts into Father Harolf's property, and sure enough, he finds his son's belongings in Father Harolf's chests. But without missing a beat, Father Harolf swore that that treasure wasn't his. In fact, he had no idea that it was even there. And since he didn't put it in there, and you could trust him because he was a priest, it must have been put there by someone else. And he had an idea of who that someone might be. Father Harolf said that it must have been put there by a priest named Athelstan. And Athelstan was Harolf's second in command. And more importantly, he was also his blood relative. Now I have my suspicions about Harolf's honesty here. But apparently, Thored's blood was up. And so if Harolf wanted to flip on a family member, so be it. And that's how Athelstan was captured and carted off to be judged by the Archbishop of York. And so now Father Harolf has gone and condemned a family member to prison or worse, which meant that he was looking down the barrel of a rather awkward Christmas if he couldn't come up with a solution quick. But he did. He decided that he would send a portion of the stolen treasure to the Archbishop of York, and the Archbishop of York could have that treasure on the condition that Father Athelstan would be released without punishment, and that he wouldn't even be demoted from his current position. And the Archbishop apparently quite liked daggers and fabric and stuff, because Father Athelstan soon returned to Horningsea without any sign of punishment or consequence. But that didn't completely settle the matter. Theft was a breach of the king's laws too. Not to mention the fact that the stolen goods were found in Harolf's chests, and that didn't look good. But as luck would have it, one of the king's attendants was in town. Thane Wolfstan. So Harolf met with Wolfstan, and decided that he would give Wolfstan a portion of the stolen goods as a gift. And then, and I'm sure this is totally unrelated, Wolfstan determined that neither Harolf nor Athelstan would be tried or punished for theft. And the matter was resolved. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, they were bribing people with stolen goods? Did they even return the stolen material back to Thorad's son? And the answer is, maybe, if there is some left. It looks like everyone who had any degree of power over the justice system were getting their beaks wet. So I'm not exactly sure how bothered they were by the plight of Thorid and his son. And as far as Wolfstan was probably concerned, justice had been meted out rather satisfactorily. I mean, have you seen this dagger? It's tight. And if this is something that you think only happens in the Dark Ages, I know someone who's looking to sell you a condo in Manhattan. Now, eventually, Father Harolf died, and Athelstan ascended to his seat, taking over the role as the head priest of Hordingsea. And by this point, Bishop Athelwald had decided that it was time for the Minster at Hordingsea to become a church property. So he bought the rights to it from King Edgar himself for the eye-watering sum of six pounds, five shillings. Now, 
this purchase, regardless of the fact that it sounds rather cheap, was bad news for Father Athelstan because he owned 240 acres at Horningsea, and now the bishop was claiming dominion over it. And Athelstan was pretty sure that at least 160 of those acres should be considered independent thanks to the whole privatization thing that had been going on. And this put Father Athelstan in conflict with the bishop. And that was bad news because the bishop knew about the theft and the bribes. And apparently Father Athelstan pushed his luck because the bishop soon took the position that Athelstan would have to return the bribes that were issued to Wolfstan and the bribes that were issued to the Archbishop of York. And I assume that returning them means giving them back to Thorred's son. Now, obviously, Father Athelstan didn't have the ability to seize money or goods from the Archbishop or from a king's attendant. And that meant that he would have to repay that amount personally, which could financially break him. But what else could he do? At least two-thirds of his lands were under the command of the bishop, which meant that now he was subject to the bishop. Well, as luck would have it, Wolfstan was in town. And if anyone might take a favorable view on bribery charges, it would probably be Wolfstan, assuming the price was right, of course. So, Father Athelstan arranged a meeting. And at that meeting, he sold the lands to Wolfstan for, quote, a small amount of money, end quote. So now he wasn't really subject to the bishop exclusively. And in exchange for the sale, he also received Wolfstan's protection from the bishop. Athelstan was safe, and Wolfstan added some more lands to his already sizable real estate portfolio. But while these stories all involve Hordingsey, don't assume that Wolfstan just stayed there. He was also acting as a reeve for Greater Cambridgeshire. And as it turned out, the opportunities for profit were substantial when you were a king's attendant and a reeve. Because somehow, while he was dispensing justice at Burley, he just happened to acquire a significant amount of land. Wherever Wolfstand went, he managed to find a way to use the justice system to enrich himself. And considering that only the king could dispense justice to a king's thane, who was going to stop him from doing any of this? This was one of the best buds of King Edgar. You've probably never even seen King Edgar, much less had a conversation with him. Do you really want to risk putting your word up against his? So even though Wolfstan was just a thane, not an elderman, we see him becoming a powerful magnate, thanks in large part to his close connection with the king and his role as a king's thane and attendant. Like I said, wise doesn't seem like the right adjective. Shrewd is much more apt. And that's the point here. Power was a much more detailed and nuanced issue than simply acquiring titles and acreage. Wolfstan, through his position as an attendant and his role as a reeve, was able to exercise enormous amounts of power, regardless of how much land he personally held. And later on, by about the time of Edward the Confessor, we'll see attendants acting under a new title, Staller. And these stallers appear to have been a form of constable. So we're seeing them slowly start to merge with the reeve duties that we saw Wolfstan carrying out. And just like attendants, stallers were almost always thanes. And yet even though they were technically outranked by the eldermen, or earls as they later called them, that wasn't always the case in practice. We see them carrying out important royal duties. And actually, in the case of one particular staller, Tovi, we see shades of the story of Wolfstan. 
We're told that Tovey was, quote, the first man in all England after the king, a staller and a royal standard bearer, end quote. And we see him exercising incredible power through his relationship with the king. And he used that power to help those he favored and wreck those that he didn't. Which, in the world of medieval nobility, is true power indeed. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all of that in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Keep